0: Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media, monitoring and informing best practice pathways to the triple aim. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred.
1: Hello, Greg. How are you today?
0: Doing great. Glad you could join us. I know this is a special day for you. So for those of you not familiar with my colleague Fred, he is a veteran health care executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, a consulting firm, and past chair and current board member of the Population Health Alliance, also known as PHA, which, by the way, is convening in Washington, D.C., November 2nd through the 4th for their annual gathering at the PHA Forum. Fred's experience spans hospital and health system administration, HMO general management, and is the founder of a disease management company. My background includes leadership and consulting support for hospitals, health systems, capitated medical groups, IPAs, and several hospital physician managed care joint ventures. I publish and principally author, acowatch.com. Founded Health Innovation Media, and I'm known on Twitter principally as Two Health Guru. Today we resume our industry coverage of population health management best practices with key thought leaders, innovators, and vendors in the space. Our special guest today is Brad Carey, who's the Vice President and General Manager at Cerner, responsible for the business growth and overall financial performance of Cerner's population health organization. Cerner's population health organization consists of 10 business units that have solutions and services spanning the care continuum. Cerner's population health offerings help people, clinicians, health systems, employers and communities keep healthy people healthy and assist those that need care to get the highest quality of care at the most economical price. Cerner achieves this by leveraging its new age platform that is solution agnostic real-time, actionable in the workflow, and programmable, combined with industry-leading services. Brad joined Cerner in 1996. He earned his bachelor's degree in medical tech from the Michigan State University, which I believe are in the top position in the AP Coaches polls. Go Spartans! So Cerner's prism on the population health industry can be found on their website, which notes... Population health management is more than an industry buzzword or the next big fad. It is the shift from solely automating health systems to managing a person's health. A healthier overall population will maximize patient satisfaction and min- minimize resource consumption. So, with that introduction, Fred, help us get to know this key industry operator.
1: Thank you so much for that introduction, Greg. And, Brad, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Fred. Glad to have you. Can you perhaps start a little bit, obviously we've got some on the introduction, a little bit about what Cerner believes its role is in the population health space and some of the services that you offer to your clients?
2: Sure. So when we looked at the industry and looked at some of the challenges over the last few decades on how to really move the needle in population health, it became apparent to us and as we engaged with our clients that there was there was a missing ecosystem, um, an ecosystem that could truly take all the disparate data, turn it into something meaningful uh, that you could run, decision support, insightful analytics, and really create a uh, continuous uh, knowledge system. In addition, it needed to be agnostic. So the reality, I think, in in our world and across the globe is you're gonna have a variety of systems Um, of all different types, whether in the home, in the hospital, in different venues of care. And you need to be able to bring all that data in, normalize it, um, and then be able to distribute it real-time into the workflows, whether that's to a person in the community, a provider, family and friends, or other members of the care team. So we really thought about it needs a new ecosystem, and we think several of these ecosystems will probably pop up over time. Um, but that's where we started four or five years ago is building that ecosystem out uh, and making it available, one of which is um, um, making it open and interoperable. So we have that. And um, in our, in our strategy there is not to, to be the only player in any of those communities, but truly make it open and, and interoperable. Uh, so that others can innovate off of it and bring their solutions and best knowledge to bear for others to experience off of that ecosystem. So within this,
1: I've heard you talk uh, about what you call programming population health. Is that sort of the sense of it, or could you sort of explain that terminology?
2: Yeah, so so the programming of, of health, when we look at how you achieve sustainable change um, – it becomes evident to us that you need a way to be able to get into the workflow with the latest evidence, the latest guidelines, whatever you need to achieve, um, Whether regardless of where that person or that care provider is. And you need an ability, all acuity patients and uh, geographies um, are different across. Um, The industry, so you want to be able to let a client, a health system, maybe a health plan or an employer be able to configure things that work the best uh, for their, you know, their demographic um, and their acuity patients and and or members of their community. So we want to be able to wire up the continuum of care and then let people be able to bring their best knowledge forward and quote unquote program it into the technology capabilities to be leveraged. And you, you
1: mentioned a couple of terms in both those answers regarding not just – I heard not just the caregiver, but you mentioned the community um, a, a couple of times. So does this system allow you to move beyond just the clinical setting in a sense to be pulling – to two-way work with data, um, both taking it in and pushing it back out to others that maybe aren't first-line caregivers?
2: It it does, and we and we think that's key which plays off of the you know actionable in the workflow that we saw missing in the industry several years ago so if you you bring that data in you may want to provide that back out to the person and let them know that hey you have a medication refill that's overdue i want to push that to you as a person um in your workflow which may be your phone it may be uh, making a call to you, it needs to be smart enough to know. Maybe you don't have technology and you need to mail a letter. So we want to get it into the workflow, and when you do that, we want to make other people associated with you and your care aware of that. So most people, as you know, with chronic conditions, they tend to provide a lot of their own care in the home. Well, who influences that person? Is that a family member, a neighbor, a parent, et cetera, or a son or daughter? And at the same time, let the care providers, let that primary care provider know, yes, we let Brad know he needs to pick up a refill. He's seven days late on that. Maybe you will let a health coach know. And make all that information available in a true longitudinal record where everybody can function on Brad's care, per se, off of a longitudinal care plan. So really span the continuum. Give access to anyone who's helping Brad stay healthy, and/or if Brad needs care, they get the most economical, highest quality care.
0: Well, it,
1: it, this is a really a great example here because I've, as I've told people before, you know, we spend so much time focusing on the care system itself, and providers can do everything right during that visit, and then the individual goes home or out into their community, and they, in, in essence, fail therapy or don't follow through with the therapy or didn't understand the therapy. So you're actually creating those hooks out into the community both with the individual and potentially with their caregivers or family members.
2: We are. We are absolutely doing that. So it may be through what people think of as a as a member portal, maybe through a provider portal, but it it's let's interact with you in your real world. So how do I get do I need to do e-visits with you because you are online? Do I need to communicate through, you know, your mobile device or your phone? I want to know what your data is coming from your wearables, if you happen to be, you know, participating with some of those, whether it's pedometers or glucometers or spirometers or weight scales that all communicate wirelessly. We want to bring that all together um, and make it bidirectional so that we can truly kind of close the gaps that are occurring, get things, you know, get to things proactively and see if we can't better manage when people need care, and keep those healthy people healthy.
1: So you just mentioned you're you're ingesting data from these these wearables and these mobile devices or the in-home devices, et cetera. Um, I know one of the issues that has been brought up, and I actually think I just saw a blog today about it, just I haven't had a chance to read it yet, which talked about the fact that maybe doctors don't want that data, how have you found that coming through to say, look, we now can bring in this wearable data or the activity that your patient has? Um, I know there's been concerns for data overload, or h- how have you dealt with that issue, or how have you heard providers now responding to that issue?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. So we so we bring the data in today, and we within the viewing of the data, wherever we push it, we will indicate where it came from, the source. Was it high, normal, low, et cetera? So we're pushing visibility to it. So in your example of a provider may not want visibility to it, we think that's more about do they really want it to overlay something they've documented into, you know, say the person's record. So we will make it viewable and coming from the person, and they can choose whether or not they actually want that accepted as part of the longitudinal record. So they have visibility, Johnny or Sally is tracking these different metrics, and then we give the power to the provider as to what they really want to have as part of the formalized longitudinal record versus maybe just data that they're tracking that they see in their own portal. And then you touched on something else too, you said you, I think you make sense of that data by
1: scoring it or saying this is, a, this is out of bounds or this is inbound, so they're not just getting raw feeds coming in of the, of the data set, is that correct?
2: Yeah, that is that is correct. So there's a lot of sophistication that goes into what we refer to as kind of the data transformation stage as data comes in. So we're making sure Brad matches to Brad. We're reconciling that. We're linking it to other information about Brad. We're not reliant on a uh, you know national identifier to do that. So we're using probabilistic algorithms to to increase that matching. Um, and then we turned it into what we call a meaningful concept. And that meaningful concept is basically think of a blood pressure is a blood pressure is a blood pressure, regardless of how I got it, where I got it, in all the different formats that I may have received it, right, from a home monitoring device, from from a stay at a hospital, an urgent care, et cetera. And then that single concept is what we actually push to, um, for visibility to those that are accessing the longitudinal record or the longitudinal care plan or any of those other venues we're pushing that data to.
1: Great. And and so tell me a little bit, too, about as this data is coming in, are you doing any sort of predictive analytics work in your systems with this data or other data sets that you have to um, identify those who may be more likely to have something happen in the next year?
2: Yes, we are. In fact, that's some of the most exciting work that we've been doing over the last couple of years. Uh, One of our partners in that space is Advocate Healthcare, and we have a collaboration with them where we've been working, developing, and and taking to market different predictive models. Um, We did this around readmissions. Uh, That algorithm today, it looks at all all sorts of different types of information, whether it's demographics, environmental, lab tests, medications, clinical data, utilization, etc., and it's an all-cause predictive algorithm, um, so it looks at why while you're, while you're either pre-admitted and before your discharge, it's scoring you on your likelihood to be readmitted um, unnecessarily within a certain period of time, and it's recommending what you should do to lower that risk score. Um, as of the most recent literature, it seems to be trending about 18 to 20 percent better than what we see in the industry. And the even more exciting thing about that one is, and all the other ones we do on our on our new ecosystem we call Healthy Intent is, it it continuously learns through what we call assisted machine learning. So basically, the computer. Is making recommendations to make the algorithm smarter and then we have data scientists and PhD statisticians and others of that sort that actually review the computers recommendations and make sure we still think they make sense and then we make those naturally available in the algorithm for our clients to leverage so we've done readmissions thus far we've done transitions of care we have found in the data that when you discharge somebody it's more Typically, a, a patient's preference or the provider's preference, and not sti- uh, statistically, uh, where is the best place for the care at the most economical cost? So that predictive model actually tells you, should you go to home health? Should you go to assisted living? Should you go to behavioral health, et cetera? So we've done several of these models. The most recent one that we're probably the most excited about there that I think will be very beneficial just in the industry in general is something where – Referring to as impactable populations, which, in its simplistic sense, is as people focus on higher quality care um, at, a, at an affordable or the lowest possible cost to still get that high quality care, resources are limited. So most will function will will focus on the high utilizer, high cost population. And what we found in the data is within that population, um, several people actually uh, regress to the mean without any interaction. So it allows you to then identify those you quote unquote can have an impact on and focus your resources on those. And those that regress to the mean, they don't regress to the mean and stay at the mean indefinitely. Over time, they'll start to digress again. And the idea there is to engage with them prior to them starting to get worse. So it's, it's helping clients and employers and states use their limited resources in a much more effective way.
1: Right. So within the group, you're identifying who is more likely to be impacted by it. And are you? I know I've heard of some of the newer work being done in that area around looking at the individual and their and their likelihood to accept something or to do something, as well as the data from a clinical perspective, et cetera. Have you begun to integrate any of that as well into determining those individuals?
2: Yes. Um, yeah. So in that, so in that algorithm in the impactable populations, it's really some will regress to the mean, mm-hmm. and so you don't need to interact with them now. Other parts of that capability releasing are who can you, who is um, predisposed by different characteristics to be someone you can impact. So a lot right. of the ones that aren't going to regress to the mean, there are certain attributes about us all individually that you can pick up on in the data and say, yeah, Brad's a good candidate to engage with because he's much more likely than Johnny to be receptive to the engagement and hence, you know, have a, have a greater likelihood to improve.
1: That's fantastic.
2: So you've got this robust system that you put together.
1: Who, who Where are you finding the greatest uptake of this system and results from uh, what you
2: put together? Yeah, so um, so we went generally available uh, with the first solution off of this this new platform, January first of uh, 2014 at, at Advocate Healthcare, and since then we've um, we've signed 66 clients, and the the diversity of the clients has been quite good. So we have employers that are signed up, we have health systems, whether or not they have any Cerner systems. We have um, state governments that have signed signed up, and we're just now starting to work with health plans. So those are kind of the main channels. Um, The the dispersion amongst those would say today it's still largely health systems um, that have been the fastest ones to take on some of the solutions. But if I look outward, um, the demand really is coming from all the channels. Um, And so I think as an awareness of as we get an awareness of kind of the platform and the capabilities out, we will start to see a more equal balance amongst those different channels.
1: Yeah, I would assume whoever is ultimately managing the risk would be interested in putting something like this in to, to uh, mitigate some of that.
2: Yeah, agreed. I agreed. All of those entities that have signed today, we, ha- we also have a few ACOs as well. It's usually, as you said, those that are taking on the risk or so who ultimately holds the risk um, is largely, and then we have a smaller percentage of those clients that their executive teams know they need they need to get started on the pop health journey, and they haven't taken on any at risk contracts yet, but they know they need to get started, learn some lessons, learn how to be good in their geographies with their acuity their acuity patients, and so we see a percentage of those health systems stepping forward to basically kind of start some trials um in their own territories.
1: So there's they're stepping into this, putting the toe in the water in a fee for service environment, but getting some of those tool sets in place in essence to learn Pop Health? It, that's exactly right. Great. So it's you you mentioned earlier and I know when Greg went through the introduction, talked about Brad, this this that is Pop Health a fad or not? You've been around it for a while, obviously built a fairly sophisticated system to help implement population health. What are your thoughts on that?
2: yeah i don't um I don't see how it could be a fad i think uh, no matter where you look across the world uh total health care expenditures is one of the top expenses in any one country. It's a big part of anybody's uh g d p so I think everyone's got the same challenge of we we've gotta collectively deliver higher quality care and we gotta have to do it at the most economical cost. And a lot of that gets into, right, appropriate care in the appropriate venue, as well as, you know, wellness and preventive care and, and keeping those healthy people healthy. But when I look at the financials from a, from a country perspective and what people are focused on, I don't see how at this point um, it could be a fad. And, and we see that echoed in our clients across the globe where the story plays really well when you get outside of the U.S. because they're typically single-payer systems. And so they're just continuously trying to improve, get that higher quality care at a lower at a lower cost. And in the U.S., as you see all the different payment models starting to shift and we're, you know, we're making that hard transition for health systems from, you know, a fee for service to more of a value based environment. And there's lots of government programs launched. that are putting more of their reimbursement at risk. I think I have yet to run into the C-suite that tells me they don't think it's going to last the the conversation always turns to how fast will it come to my part of the country? And, and we kind of see that we see Chicago moving very quickly. We see other parts um, of the U S haven't even really begun to start at least on the commercial side. Um, But as the government goes, as we've seen and they implement more programs, we expect the commercial pairs will follow closely behind.
1: (laughs) As these groups begin to move, as you talked about at different speeds, in, in different parts of the country. What are some of the stumbling blocks or hurdles you've seen or things that people ought to consider as they begin to take these steps into population health?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think, I don't know that there, I have yet to see a model that uh, verbatim could just be dropped into another geography and expected to have the same kind of success. So I do think there's an element of there's some there's some good principles to follow. Um if you you know, take your risk conservatively initially, maybe obvious, you know, basically trial and practice in your territories and learn, um would be one aspect. The other is you're going to have to create, you've got to create a network. And that doesn't mean that you have to go employ everyone. But you're going to have to form at least good partnerships and affiliations across that continuum so that you can truly collaborate on how you provide that highest quality care at the lowest cost. Um, And where I see organizations trying where they maybe lack some of those um, aspects of the continuum of care, it becomes much harder to produce the consistent results. So I think you you've got to you've got you've to gotta start early, start small, do pilots, figure out what works. There's a lot of change management that goes on within your own organization as well as with these affiliated places you're going to partner with, and you have to align incentives. Right? It, it's really hard <laughs> at the moment while we're transitioning this fee for service to value-based. So getting the incentives right for all the participants um is another is another area we've seen is very key to those that have been highly successful.
1: And of those you've worked with, are there any certain things they've done around the incentives or the structure of the payment models that has been more successful or is that also a regional variation issue you've seen?
2: Yeah, um I would say that what I've seen be successful is when when you produce a savings that that is equitably shared amongst those participants um and that might sign that might that might sound obvious however you if you're the health system and you have affiliations with the uh physician practices in your community, I think you need to be very thoughtful about uh just how much you're incenting for the benefit of driving that better care on some segment of the population um and be very thoughtful about how you share in that savings. So I think sharing, sharing in the savings I've seen work very successfully, whether those are employed physicians or affiliated physicians, involving them in the governance to define how you're going to measure them and how the incentives align to those measurements um, seems to be key in all the places I've seen success. And have you worked with
1: um, physician physicians run organizations as well as health system-run organizations in implementing these population health-based approaches? And if so, is there a Uh, difference there?
2: um, You know, we have. um, And I don't – I haven't seen a difference in the sense of you need to get participation in your governance, you need to – Align incentives to agreed-upon measures, and you need to distribute those savings uh, equitably across the participants. I haven't to date seen a change in that kind of philosophy and approach, whether the, you know, the organization is uh, a physician-led or physician-owned versus you know a more typical health system.
1: Right. We'd had some discussions early on, uh, some earlier shows with particularly with some of the folks in the primary care arena about. Whether or not, you know, health systems having that fairly substantial infrastructure and fixed costs as they try to move down this path, you know, it's tough because they're, in essence, taking business out of their own uh, pot, so to say. And so um, there were some discussions about pr- providers versus hospital-led systems and whether there may be some differences in outcomes, particularly in some of the early ACOs. I was just wondering if you'd seen that at all. Um The last thing we could possibly get to here is where do you see the future of population health and systems like you've developed? Where do they go? What are some of the new exciting things happening or what else do you think might be going on in the field that would be of interest to our listeners?
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the things we talk about in Cerner is, you know, the risk is shifting from the payers to the providers. And I don't think, and we don't think it's long before that risk will shift from the providers to the consumers or the or the people of a community. And when you get to that stage, um you're going to start people consumers or people of a community will buy healthcare services much like they buy a big screen TV. It'll be much more like a retail purchase where there'll be price transparency. We'll get to that point uh in our era. We are not there yet, but you'll be able to know what the CT scan costs or the radiology uh, scan costs. And you can choose based on your typical buying behaviors of, you know, is it high quality? What's the cost? What's the convenience? And, you know, how is the service? And so we do view that it will move down that path, um, which will create, you know, competition, much like in the typical retail space today, where you'll compete on those traditional buying behaviors uh, in the retail industry. So we think it'll get to that point, and then the consumer will will start to become much more educated when it's their own dollar that they're deciding where it goes.
1: And so do you see this system pushing that information through to the consumer, like you're doing today with some of the other information you give back to them?
2: Yeah, we absolutely do. So we interact we interact with that consumer today through our portal and we're going to be pushing up their longitudinal record and the next as the data is available whether it's quality scores from health grades or we start to get the full price transparency, we're going to start creating that. We're going to push that face up to the consumer so that they can make the best choices for themselves. So we we absolutely see the whole industry shifting that way.
1: What a great way to end. We actually have come up to now moving beyond the ACO out to where the community becomes that risk-bearing entity and the consumer themselves. Thank you so much, Brad. Really appreciate you on the show today. Pleasure. My
0: pleasure. And that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our special guest, Brad Carey, Vice President and General Manager at Cerner, for his time and insights today. Do follow Cerner's work in the population health space, as well as, obviously, their presence in EHRs, via at Cerner on Twitter. And check them out on the web at www.cerner.com. Until we meet again, for uh, Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now and one more time, good luck to the Spartans.